I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Today, I'm going to focus on alcohol and alcohol use disorders because it is something that listeners often ask about. They ask about the comorbidity, which is the, you know, occurring at the same time of that diagnosis, as well as borderline personality disorder. Um, and substance abuse in general can become, can complicate personality disorder diagnoses, recovery, and treatment. So when we look at alcohol, I mean, we want to think about alcohol as an, pretty interesting, right? It's kind of a paradox, the, the impact that alcohol has. On one hand... In moderate doses, alcohol can have some positive effects on our body, like risk of reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. And it is undeniably one of the most widely and safely used intoxicants in the world, even though it is also potent and dangerous, both from a psychological and a physiological standpoint. Alcohol is currently responsible for more deaths and personal destruction than any other known substance of abuse with the exception of tobacco, right? And we know this because it's been scientifically studied, and so we can say that with scientific certainty, alcohol has these, these uh, impacts. It's legal, it's easy, easily obtained, and it, it reduces social inhibitions and produces pleasure and a sense of well-being when used, again, in reasonable doses, so in moderation. So there's a question of why. Why do individuals engage in substance abuse and addiction? Well, for one, all drugs of abuse affect the brain's reward pathways, right? So think about borderline personality disorder and the impulses that drive the behavior and sometimes really the the co-occurring diagnosis of ADHD or adult ADD or even having executive function or frontal lobe deficits, And those uh, disorders, we call, you know, some of the people who are experiencing them dopamine chasers, right? So I used to to like what feels good. I'm going to do what feels good, anything that feels good. And, And the effects of alcohol, they do appear to be related to complex multiple interactions with dopamine, GABA, serotonin, opioid, and NMDA neurotransmitter systems in our brain. So the development of addiction including alcohol, is affected by genetic predisposition and influenced by alterations in the rewarding chemicals released per dose, such as um, our, our rewarding chemicals, our dopamine receptors, right? So what effects do alcohol, does alcohol have? Alcohol has effects actually that are similar to depressants, and these characteristics include decreased cognitive functioning, while intoxicated, decreased inhibition and increased impulsivity, which I think personally is really interesting because I know that a lot of people drink because they feel calmer and they feel therefore that they will be less impulsive, actually quite the opposite, risk of overdose of substances, development of depressive symptoms and heavy users, withdrawal symptoms, which are similar to other depressants, Symptoms of anxiety during withdrawal, if you've ever felt anxious um, during a hangover, it's pretty common. And then one that's pretty troubling is in heavy users, substance-induced psychosis can occur. 
Now we can take a little bit um, of time here to look at the risk factors for developing substance abuse and the protective factors. So a risk factor is, you know, the, the kind of risks that would be involved for an individual developmentally to grow up into someone who, who has a substance abuse disorder. And the protective factors would be the things that would protect them from engaging or choosing to engage in that type of behavior. So a risk factors for individuals to develop substance abuse disorder, specifically alcohol abuse disorder, would be, you know, children with conduct problems. And these are theoretical models, meaning that they are theories that tell us that maybe if we look at a certain population and we look at the, the research, we can see that this population is more likely to do a behavior, to engage in a behavior, right? So one of the models focuses on children who have temperaments that make it difficult for them to regulate their emotions and control their impulses. Okay, interesting, right? So one of the models that talks about a risk factor for developing a substance abuse disorder is focused on children who have temperaments that make it difficult for them to regulate their emotions and control their impulses. That's pretty interesting, right? Does anybody out there know any anyone who might have been a child? <laughs> who had a difficult time regulating their emotions and controlling their impulses, my hand is raised. Hi, that was me. Clearly, these children are difficult to parent. No way. <laughs> and if one or both of their parents have alcohol use disorder, it is likely that they will be poorly socialized and have trouble getting along in school. Poor academic performance and rejection by more mainstream peers at home may make it more likely for these children to join peer groups where drinking and other risky behaviors are encouraged. Parents with alcohol use disorders will likely not monitor their children closely and will lose control over them at an early age. These kids drink early, before 15 years of age. If such a child is genetically predisposed to alcohol use disorders, these environmental factors may further increase the tendency. That's tough, right? Because I know that a lot of us out there can relate to some of those. Absolutely. Stress and distress is another model of risk factors. Some children have temperaments that make them highly reactive to stress and disruption. I mean, this... Very much sounds like a temperament that could quite develop into borderline personality disorder, guys. <laughs> this type of child may be born into a family with a history of alcohol use disorder where the stressors may be intense, or even a non-alcoholic family with everyday types of low-level stressors. Regardless of the child's family environment, the individual maintains higher levels of inner distress, anxious, depressed feelings than other children. When they take their first drink, the inner distress dissipates for a while. This leads to more drinking and may lead to alcohol use disorder. However, for some individuals at certain doses, alcohol may induce rather than reduce the stress response. Research demonstrates that alcohol actually induces the stress response by simulating hormone release by the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal glands, and it's hypothalamus, excuse me. Research also demonstrates a bidirectional relationship between alcohol and stress. Interesting, right? So in terms of the idea that alcohol reduces stress, it actually increases it, or that it reduces anxiety, it actually increases it. 
Same thing like with smoking. I used to think that when I smoked cigarettes, tobacco, that that would decrease my anxiety, but it actually did the opposite. Another risk, risk factor is someone who is more sensitive to the effects of alcohol. So if we go over them, there are these three models, right? So the three models, children with cognitive problems, stress and de- distress, and sensitivity. All of those have to do with a child's genetic predisposition, right? So that's their biology, the, their uh, social environment growing up, and their temperament, right? So biology, nature versus nurture. Okay, so some known risk factors, if, you know, kind of list them out, are temperament, like I said, moodiness, negativity, and provocative behavior may lead a child to being criticized by teachers and parents. So if you are a child who acts out, you might be more criticized, which means you feel more um, rejected, and there's these strained interactions, and that might increase the chances. Hyperactivity is a risk factor for developing alcohol use disorders because children with ADHD and conduct disorders have an increased risk. Parents, and you know, this is interesting because the most compelling and largest body of research shows that parents' use and attitudes towards alcohol use is, you know, really the most important factor in an adolescent's decision to drink. Um, Gender, so Recent research even has stated that heavy alcohol use is almost three times more common among men than women and also more common among boys in middle school or high school than among girls. Men with ADHD and conduct disorders or and or conduct disorders are more likely to use alcohol than men without these disorders. While women who experience more depression, anxiety and social avoidance as children are more likely to begin using alcohol as teens. And psychology, right? Bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, antisocial panic dis- uh, personality disorder, and panic disorder all increase the risk of a future alcohol use disorder. And finally, childhood abuse is a significant rif- risk factor for later alcohol and substance abuse. Women who are physically abused are one and a half to two times more likely to abuse alcohol than non-abused adults. Children from crowded, noisy, disorderly homes without rules or religion are more likely to abuse alcohol as teens. Children who are quick to anger, who perceive themselves to be highly stressed, who are resentful of parents' absences, or who have repeated conflicts at home are more likely to abuse alcohol as teens. After reading that, reading all of the risk factors, I do hope that If you're out there and you're struggling with alcohol use, with alcohol use disorder, with substance abuse, that you understand there is a reason for your propensity to use substances. It is an illusion of escape. It it provides the illusion of the pain going away, the intensity going away. Something to note here from this episode is that when you drink or when you use temporarily the illusion is there that things in your body have gotten better that the anxiety is reduced however the opposite effects are occurring increased stress and increased anxiety are is 
you know, are, are occurring there. And there are some, some pretty big risk factors and they correlate strongly with individuals with borderline personality disorder. There are some protective factors too. So if there are people in your life who you know and grew up in the same household as you, but they didn't fall prey to that, then there are some things that, that tell us that children who have identified as having a parent-family connectedness, say they felt either close to their mother or father, and they felt that their mother or father cared for them. They were satisfied with their relationship with their mother or their father or their parents, and they felt loved by their family members. Children who felt connected at school, who felt that like they were a part of the school and they were treated fairly, were also protected. So people who develop pretty secure attachments had protective factors. And that may be some reason why people you know did not develop alcohol use. So now I'm going to define alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder is also referred to as alcohol abuse, as I've been using those interchangeably. And in the DSM-5, it is defined as a problematic pattern of use with two or more of the following criteria over a one-year period. So I'll read the criteria. Alcohol often taken in larger amounts over a longer period than was intended is one. A persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use. A great deal of time spent and activities necessary to obtain alcohol. Craving or a strong desire to use. Recurrent alcohol use, resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Continued alcohol use despite having persistent or kind of ongoing interpersonal problems. Important social or work or recreational activities are just given up or reduced because of alcohol use, so it's impairing your ability or will to engage in regular activities. Using alcohol when it's physically hazardous, like driving, drinking and driving. And alcohol use that's continued despite knowledge of having persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problems. Tolerance and withdrawal. It is, see, alcohol use taken away, right, taking taken apart from a borderline personality disorder diagnosis is pretty responsive to immediate intervention. Unfortunately, if you're a loved one of someone who has alcohol abuse disorder, there are going to be withdrawal symptoms, um, sweating, rapid heartbeat, hypertension, tremors, anorexia, insomnia, agitation, anxiety, nausea, vomiting, tremors of the hand. Hands are usually the earliest symptom. All of those can be involved with with, with withdrawal. So if you you have a loved one going through withdrawal, those are real symptoms and they're incredibly distressful. Hallucinations, seizures, tremors, those are the most severe forms. And the hallucinosis, which is when, you know, an individual going through withdrawal hallucinates, experiences illusions, occurs one to two days after decreasing or abstaining from alcohol. So alcohol is something that people will continue to use despite the adverse consequences, especially when we look at um, alcohol in relation to borderline personality disorder because it seems to really provide an escape. But it can become very dangerous for individuals, especially individuals who have borderline personality disorder, to engage in 
drinking or substance use disorders, number one, it actually increases anxiety and increases stress. So it doesn't have the long-term effects that you would think that it has. And so the more you continue to do the behavior, the longer it takes to walk the path of recovery too. It masks some of the symptoms of lack of identity, right? Because if you're drinking and your social inhibitions are sort of decreased and you feel like you're more fluid in the way that you're conversing with people, then you're better able to mirror. Then when you go into treatment, we're not looking at the elephant in the room, right? The first thing we're going to do, we're going to take one bite of the elephant at a time and we're going to look directly at the substance abuse or substance use and then maybe you go to treatment and you come out and you feel like everything's okay maybe you don't even get a diagnosis or you do but yet they're not addressing that because we can only tackle one thing at a time so it makes it much more difficult and for those of you out there that suffer from insomnia this is another illusion right? An effect that alcohol has that people aren't understanding isn't actually an effect. It doesn't decrease anxiety, doesn't decrease stress, and it definitely does not help you sleep. Although some people believe that it helps them sleep, chronic excessive drinking can induce sleep disorders because it disrupts the sequence and duration of sleep states. It alters the total sleep time as well as the time required to fall asleep. So drinking alcohol specifically during within an hour of bedtime appears to disrupt the second half of the sleep period. So if you're doing that, you might sleep poorly during the second half of sleep and wake up from dreams and returning to sleep with difficulty. And then in the daytime, you'd be fatigued and sleepy. So it's just important to note that some of the things that you think you're getting as a benefit are actually not benefits at all. Alcohol definitely... Um, has complications. If you are pregnant, there's a fetal alcohol syndrome. You, you know, sometimes people, especially maybe young men that's been researched, they exhibit violent and antisocial behaviors. There's just a lot of reasons why drinking is something that you would want to tackle as it really takes you pretty far away from recovery, from the recovery path. Individuals with borderline personality disorder, at least this is a personal opinion, not a clinical opinion, then when individuals begin to drink or to use, I know for myself when I used to engage in substance use or substance abuse that I was not, I was doing that to mirror the behavior of other people in social settings. I never actually wanted to do drugs. I don't think I would have ever woken up one day and been like, oh, I'm going to do this. I was in a crowd of people that were doing that thing, and all I wanted was to be accepted and validated. And so I would do these things when I was younger into college, and I would do them because, you know, again, I, I didn't know any other way, and I didn't have depth or an identity in my own self or enough security and confidence, and there was this idea that there was – uh these drugs or alcohol or substance abuse took away that pain even temporarily. And you're, you know, you get to have that acceptance for just a little while. So if you can relate to what I've said there, that more personal note, it's important that you look at whether or not mirroring the behaviors of people that you're in relationship with is taking you away from recovery or helping you jump in. I did an episode um, pretty much a while back, and then you can look for it. It's called Escape, the Escape Clause. I believe that with 
borderline personality disorder, <clears throat> substance use, including alcohol and other drugs. It's an escape clause. <clears throat> and when you have an escape clause, it becomes very appealing. I can feel intense. I can feel emotional. I mean, it's uh, BPD is a disorder of avoidance, I say, right? So that means avoiding things that are emotional. So once I got a little taste of what that would feel like, I wanted more and more and more because it appears that it decreases that anxiety and stress. And, you know, it's an escape clause. So you can go back and check out that episode and listen to it. One of the questions that I'm asked, and this will be it for today, is whether or not an individual should tackle the BPD first or the substance first. Now, in terms of alcohol, definitely alcohol withdrawal first. Go through that. And then make sure to follow up with treatment. There are not many places out there will force or push at all for you to follow up to treatment because that is your choice. And they just might not be equipped. And so it's up to you to be your own advocate. If you are in a substance abuse facility and you are getting support for that abuse, for that withdrawal, and you've gone to meetings, et cetera, and you leave, and you're kind of left with going to NA or AA as a, as a program for yourself, but you know you need something more, it can, it's common to feel hopeless, like they should have helped me, right? But in, in the field sometimes of therapy, there are lenses through which providers are looking, and if we look at you through the lens of addiction, then you'll be seen through the lens of addiction, right? So we need to make sure that we are mental health advocates for ourselves and that we are able to say, hey, please, you're looking at me through the lens of addiction and I appreciate that and I also struggle with this disorder. Can you help me with this now? Can you help me with the main reason why I feel the need to avoid and escape, which as we looked at those risk factors, it's feeling like no one loves us, feeling like we are rejected and like we don't belong. Be your own advocate there. And so, yes, addressing the substance use first is definitely what to do. But knowing that when you go in, if you do need to go in, into a withdrawal program or to detox, if you got to go into detox for whatever substance it is, go to detox first and understand that that is one step on the journey. And that when you are, have completed that program, it is important to find support and help because if not, then underneath the disorder of avoidance is still going to be the child who has a difficult temperament and who needs love, support, acceptance, and who needs to learn to regulate their emotions. All right, everybody. So if you have any other questions about alcohol use specifically, you can definitely reach out and let me know. And I'll be back next week for another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. I will do an episode about drug abuse and other substance abuse. So hopefully you guys are having a hanging in there for the holiday season. Remember when you're spending time with family, you want to look at what they are capable of and alter and adjust your expectations to meet their capabilities, right? You want to do that if you love that person. You prioritize the love that you have for that person over your own need to be self-righteous, right? Over your own ego. So practicing humility this holiday season, even though humility is uncomfortable, will go a long way. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Stay tuned next week for another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful.
Thanks for listening. That was From Borderline the Beautiful, a production of Skeeter's Strength Mindset Coaching Systems. We help frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at skeetersstrength.com. If you like this show, remember, you can hear it on Anchor or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast or any app you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have too. Just download that Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. So, if you like this podcast, not only can you download that Anchor app, but you can help us get this message out to so many more people. Head over to Apple and offer us that five-star rating and let me know what you're thinking about some of our material. The more stars and higher rating we get, the more people will have access to From Borderline to Beautiful, hope and help for individuals with BPD.